interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Last, um, um, yeah, you could stop there. Um, he he has to um, use 
what musicians call deceptive cadences to keep it going longer and longer. So you sense the furlong, and, uh, which is uh, hard to translate into English. Uh, literally, um, you know, the translator says wait no longer, but it really means um, my um, waiting, my longing. And um, so Bach was a painter of words. And every time he, he, he paints a biblical text, you, you, you feel what the, uh, the author was trying to say. Now, the next two examples will be um, on the text of Revelation 14.13. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yes, says the Spirit, they rest from their labors and their works follow them. Uh, the first is Heinrich Schütz. And uh, we take a step backwards here for a reason. Schutz was uh, born in 1587, uh, 1585, and he died in 1672. He certainly was the greatest German composer of the 17th century, had a huge influence on Bach. He was the Kapellmeister at the chapel of the Elector of Saxony in Dresden from 1617 um, to the end of his, of his time. With one significant interruption, he went to Copenhagen uh, because of the Thirty Years' War. And indeed, much of Schütz's music has something about war or the atmosphere of war in it. He's known almost exclusively for his church music um, and um, perhaps for his choral music most of all. The war affected his whole life. Um, this piece of which we're going to hear an excerpt um, is a piece written about the, the issue of war. And uh, the Geistmusik, the Geistliche Chormusik, the spiritual choir music that he, that he wrote uh, at this time, which includes six different parts, um, were meditations um, for uh, the city of Leipzig, and particularly for its council, in view of the end of the Thirty Years' War, 1648. It asks for a return to purity. Um, Schutz loved Italy, and he loved the Italian style, but here he was also anxious to retain the greatness of German composing with all of its intricacy. Um, the piece we're going to hear, which is based, as I say, on this part of Revelation, Blessed Are the Dead, um, has a number of fascinating musical features. Uh, the word selig, which is for peace, is an extended choral piece, a choral uh, chord. Um, and um, when he gets to Blessed Be the Dead, like Bach, he likes to paint words. So death goes down, and then in the Lord goes back up. Very literal stuff that you can kind of hear just uh, in your um, or first level of hearing. And um, he meditates on this over and over again until uh, finally uh, there's, there's a change. Uh, he says, yes, or ya. Yes, says the Spirit. Now, I'll, I'll try to point out when this comes. Uh, the, there's a pause and what does the Spirit say? Well, they now rest from all their labors. Uh, they rest now. They rest from all their labors. And you'll notice that when he comes to this, it's an affirmation. It's almost a, a sermon in music. Yes, says the Spirit. And then, finally, a, a longer section on resting from one's works. And as a good Protestant... He tried to insist that um, instead of the agitated works that you are resting from, you will do quiet good works which are an honor to Christ uh, towards the world to come. Um, the real life of this music is, in the end, is in the setting of each word and line. Uh, Schutz is a preacher. He wants to convince you, to move you, to exhort you, to encourage you. He's very much the Lutheran 
choir musician. And yet as the consummate craftsman, um, he does this not in any kind of artificial way, not using music as a mere vehicle, uh, but music as, as the statement itself. Um, in, in his long preface to this work, he advises younger German composers to resist the current style that's much more popular and brash and to bite the hard nut of basic counterpoint. Um, he's thinking, nothing changes, right? Uh, these young composers, they're drawn to the easy, pleasing stuff that you can, you know, throw in a lot of um, uh, diminished chords and impress them. And, and, um, and he said, no, don't do that. Just be composers, be craftspeople. Um, it is a six-voice funeral motet. And for Schutz, death is mysterious, but yet not ultimately threatening. Um, so let's listen to his interpretation of Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead. Okay.
now, um, strongly influenced both by Bach and Schütz, the great Johannes Brahms. If Bach was studying the longing of the church fulfilled by Christ coming and living among his people, and if Schütz is studying war and peace, meditating on labor's death, but then true rest from which good works follow. Brahms is looking for heaven. Brahms, not quite in resignation, is driven to faith in the mysterious ways of God. Composed in 1865, after the death of his mother, Brahms wrote a magnificent requiem. It is a German requiem. It has no relation to uh, Roman liturgy, uh, nor is it particularly nationalistic. It's composed of texts that he himself assembled from the Lutheran Bible. And... um, People note that it was in the same year that his mother died and his great mentor Schumann is also commemorated in this. Uh, He brought several things from previous works into it, particularly the piano concerto in D minor. Um, But um, the great debate is, what is the role of Christianity in the Brahms Requiem? It's certainly Christian on the surface because it uses Bible verses talks about hope, blessedness, and um, yet there is not one mention of Christ. And this ensued, this uh, triggered a great debate on on how Christian is it. Is it only that uh, a prophetic sermon from individual experience is being preached? Maybe with universal application? Is it only, as some people thought, a lesson in patience, which brings dignity and perspective to the mysteries of life and death and instills a conviction of the immortality of the spirit? Or is it more? I think it's much more. If you look at the totality of Brahms' works, particularly his religious motets, um, you realize that this man was not afraid to name Christ only he sometimes hesitated to do so in order not to bring false comfort to people he considered um, formalistic in their religion. He wanted them to experience the the loneliness, the death, um, the transience of life before they could be in line uh, for the comfort of heaven. But he surely did believe in the comfort of heaven. He owes much to Schutz. Um, His treatment of joy is rich and complex. His heaven has a piquancy which prevents it from being conventional and simple-minded. And this requiem encircles the secret province of God's supreme goodness. The argument of the piece is circular. The end, as it were, returns to the beginning but at a higher level. And here, in his meditation on Revelation 14, 13, uh, of course, we're in a 19th century context now. Um, You have uh, the end result of a long struggle um, emerging with um, a consummate peace. Uh, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord uh, from henceforth. His his stress on the happiness or the, or the blessing is even stronger uh, than, than Schutz. And um, then uh, when he comes to the Spirit speaking, it has even a, a more pronounced authority. Here's an excerpt from this gorgeous piece, which you'll hate me for cutting off, but you'll have to go home and listen to it at home. Um, just think of this um, longing that Bach has, the war and peace in Schutz, but also for Brahms... Um, this uh, pathos, this, this struggle against the hypocritical way of getting there too fast, finally coming to resting from um, 
our works. Okay, go ahead. Thanks. this amazing tradition to a very, very different one, no less amazing, that of African-American tradition. And as you, uh, as you know, um, during the experience of slavery, African-Americans um, heard and embraced the gospel um, with the wonderful miracle that they were able to accept the Jesus of their oppressors without accepting the way their oppressors lived the Christian life oftentimes. Gave up a lot of his blues singing when he became a Christian uh, for the sake of the gospel. A remarkable guitar player as well as singer, uh, blind Gary Davis loved to bring people a simple message usually from a biblical text, sometimes from a theological truth, um, and to convince them through song. Um, it is said that he could make the strings talk just as much as he could sing and make his voice talk. Um, there are very few recordings of him. Uh, we do have a, a good series that he did in New York City. Um, but probably his most famous gospel piece is, Oh, What a Beautiful City. I heard him do this live at the Newport Jazz Festival. I'll never forget it. Um, and, you know, um, here he was in this audience of, of college kids, you know, in the 60s, and uh, just speaking to them as though they understood what it was to follow the Lord. And I'm just going to play a song for them and hope that they were doing well in their spiritual life and, you know, remembering to pray. And these kids who were, were listening to Blind Gary for most all kinds of reasons except that one. But um, he was fine. He was in his own world. And, and, uh, and he sang this song. It's, um, it's unusual because in one way it is so repetitive. Uh, it's, it's really a meditation on uh, the concrete beauty of, of the city, the new city of, uh, of Jerusalem. And um, although I won't play you the whole piece because it takes quite a while, um, he starts thinking about the streets and the gold and the walls and uh, by the end of the song, you're just there walking around those streets. Uh, you might as well be a citizen, um, an active citizen of it, of it right now, which, of course, is his very point. You are. If you're a Christian, you're already there. So let's listen to this, uh, this wonderful gospel tune from the great Gary Davis.
right in the center of the tonal tradition of uh, the major period of Western music. Uh, but it's, it's also extraordinary because this piece, which is a meditation on several parts of the book of Revelation, um, was written in prison. Olivier Messian, uh, France, one of France's greatest composers of the 20th century, uh, who died just a few years ago, uh, was a young composition student um, in uh, 1939 when Germany invaded Poland, and he was drafted into the army. Um, his poor eyesight kept him from active combat, so uh, he f moved and worked as a furniture mover in uh, Sargumin, and then he became an orderly in the medical auxiliary. Um, he uh, was captured and brought to a prison camp, uh, first in a place called Görlitz in Silesia. Um, and um, he uh, recounts in his memoirs, and his wife also uh, tells interviewers exactly what happened there, Um, he was a, a strong character, and um, although he was a prisoner, he had a way of, of getting his way. Um, upon our arriving in the camp of Gerlitz, called in military jargon, Stalag 8A, like all the other prisoners, I was at once stripped of my clothing. Naked though I was, I continued to guard with a fearsome look a satchel containing all of my treasures, that is to say, a little library of pocket orchestral scores that would be my consolation when, like the Germans themselves, I suffered from hunger and cold. This eclectic little library ranged from the Brandenburg Concerti of Bach to the Lyric Suite of Berg. Um, this uh, fearsome look, Messiaen said in a later um, interview, was directed towards this armed soldier who tried to confiscate his music. There he was with his submachine gun wanted to take away his satchel, and I gave him such a terrible look that it was he who was afraid, and it was I who, completely naked, got to keep my music. Um, and um, that in, this, in this camp, between 39 and 45, about 120 prisoners of war passed through. And um, Messiaen, although um, a prisoner and living in very hard conditions, uh, was given a little bit of special leniency, first because he had poor eyesight, and second because the camp directors recognized his culture and thought rather that he could help maybe with the atmosphere of the camp, with the mood and the morale. Um, and um, so he gave him um, a room and some score paper, and uh, he introduced him to three other musicians um, in the camp who, who were from different backgrounds, Um, and uh, one was Etienne Pasquier, who was a, a wonderful cello player. Um, and the other was Henri Akoka, who played clarinet. And uh, then there was a, a violin player. And so he set himself the task of writing a quartet using this unusual uh, combination of piano, which is what he played, cello, violin, and a uh, B-flat clarinet. And he decided, what should I write about but the book of Revelation? Now, um, a strong believer himself, uh, most of his output is in some way about the relation of heaven to earth. Uh, most of his music in, in some way testifies 
to the reality and the presence of God here on earth. Um, and so he wrote this piece, um, which is, although modern and not in a kind of typical tonal language, really quite accessible, uh, as you'll see. Um, he said that um, he was in this dreadful prison and he was persuaded that he'd forgotten everything about music. He'd never again be capable um, of doing what he'd set his life to do. And yet he had this wonderful surprise. He had in his backpack a little book containing, in spite of its very small size, the Psalms, the Gospels, the Epistles, and the Revelation. This little book never left me. It followed me everywhere. I read it and reread it constantly. I paused upon this vision of St. John, the angel crowned with a rainbow, and I found a glimmer of hope. Now, crucial to understanding the title of the quartet, which is Quartet for the End of Time, is that Messiaen believed that in the end there would be no more burden of time, no more um, kind of laboring through time, because God would bring timelessness, eternity to us. Um, there are people who understand that there shall be no more delay. That's not it. There will be no more time with a capital T. That is, there will be no more space, no more time. One leaves the human dimension with cycles and destiny to rejoin eternity. So he wrote uh, these meditations on um, uh, eternity and time. Now, the two ex excerpts that you're, you're about to hear uh, are quite different. Um, and you should really listen to the whole piece if you want to get the flavor for it. Uh, but the first is called A Dance of Fury for the Seven Trumpets. Okay? And um, he rather imagines the beginning of the judgment. You know, I read that passage where Jesus is going to undo the seal and then the trumpets are going to judge as, um, as a furious time one of uh, the unleashing of uh, chaos and of uh, judgments and so forth. And then this, the next piece I'm going to play is um, Praise to the Immortality of Jesus, which is utterly different. It's a peaceful, it's like the peace that Brahms talks about, only in a very different mode. Um, one more thing about this, uh, this re remarkable piece. Uh, never has there been a more moving and uh, really remarkable premiere than when they had the whole prison camp come to hear this piece performed on the stage. These are soldiers um, who weren't particularly inclined to love or understand modern music. They were riveted. And this has become uh, perhaps one of the great masterpieces of the 20th century. Let's listen to these two excerpts just to give you a flavor for it.
last one. Um, the church longs for Christ and he comes and makes his dwelling at that wonderful table in our own hearts. The church longs for the peace of the gospel, yet with good works that follow from dwelling in his peace. The church is hypocritical in wanting a fast-track happiness, but needs to learn to wait and to have faith in the mysterious but real goodness of God. The church wants abstract truths rather than concrete meaning. The church is in prison, yet Jesus is immortal and invites us into his resurrection. This is what the book of Revelation is all about. And these musicians have helped us to understand it. It is indeed a book that says, Jesus wins. Uh, what language do you think will be in heaven? French. French. <laughs> that was easy. Are there no, any other questions? That was it. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> one of the one of the images of Revelation too is the uh, the choral. It seems like the the music that is echoing down the corridors of, of heaven hmm. and just uh, just not a single voice but the chorus the yeah. chorus yeah. nobody out of tune that's that's hope I think that's hope I hope that I can sing up there okay I will here you go here's a few questions do you think that trying to affect change via interaction in the university environment is a fruitful way to make change. Yes. All right. To, <clears throat> now a follow-up question. <clears throat> to, to what extent should this be as individuals or should it be as representatives of the church? Okay. Um, of course, I think the university is a very important place to affect change. It's a limited place in some ways because um, in the modern West, the university doesn't have the authority that it used to have or that it now has in places like Asia. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of good work can be done at the university level and needs to be done. Uh, we still need folks who think through issues and who can guide others. Uh, we need leaders who are educated, and part of education would be in a university setting. Um, my friend James Hunter believes that the university is actually a key place uh, to bring change, and so he has begun a, a fascinating project, which is a, uh, a study center on um, studying culture. Um, and he brings lots of fascinating people there who are trying to understand our times with the purpose specifically of um, educating gatekeepers, be they politicians, business people, and so forth, with um, uh, the tools to understand our times and with a desire to change them. Um, so he believes that the university has a, has a central purpose. I'm maybe not as optimistic as that, um, although I do think the university is, a, is an important place. Um, in the 60s, places like Harvard um, sent the brain trust into the Kennedy administration. And, uh, you know, there was much more dependence on universities than there seems to be today. Um, I'd like to see some of that happen, not necessarily with the same message that Harvard people gave Kennedy in the 60s, but at least that the universities could be seen as a resource uh, for, for leaders in, in different fields. I think there's a skepticism in America about that partly because of our anti-intellectualism, partly because sometimes the university sends the wrong signals or gives confusing messages. Um, but I, I, I do hope that um, the, the university can, have, can gain some of that authority back um, and, and once again be um, the leader that it was in the Middle Ages, from Bologna to Oxford to the Sorbonne 
where people look to to the universities for um, answers to the toughest questions. Um, in your first session this morning, you talked about our role as Christians in our various spheres being uh, to work quietly and with ideas of incorporating Christian wisdom as with legislation. Could you speak further to how Christians should approach disagreement mm. or contention with other Christians over what it means to have Christianity impact our work? Well, I think um, healthy disagreement is, is a great Christian virtue. And I think um, many of the ideas that we believe today and accept, many of the values we come to live by, we're not the result of somebody decreeing them at some point, but we're the de- result of debate and discussion. Um, you know, the Westminster Confession, which is what Presbyterians uh, subscribe to, was the result of, I think, five or six years of debate. It's actually a compromise statement. It may not look like that to some people, but, um, you know, they, they, uh, it, democracy, which has a lot of relationship to Christianity, I think, considers debate a, a great virtue and compromise in, in political spheres does not mean um, you know accommodation to the least good it means working out uh, an agreement that can move both sides forward um, now I, I recognize that in some disagreements um, you don't want to end with a compromise um, and somebody has to be right but I think we've lost the art of, of disagreeing in an atmosphere of trust um, I was at a, a lecture one evening not too long ago at Bryn Mawr College uh, across the river from where we are. And uh, your friend Dick Kyes was the lecturer. And he was given some kind of topic. And uh, he gave a wonderful, wonderful lecture on this topic. And in the question and answer period afterwards, uh, one young woman from Bryn Mawr, she said the following line of questions. Um, you believe in truth, don't you? And Dick said, yes, I do. And then she said, well, then you'll be trying to force me into your point of view. And Dick said, no, I won't. But she said, you believe in truth. Yes. Well, you'll have to be coercing me. No. And they went back and forth like this for quite a while. And um, Dick said, you know, not only uh, do I not want to try to coerce you, but my view of truth is um, that it needs to be examined. Um, he said, I, I'd like to persuade you, but that's not the same as coercion. And she went right back and said, oh, well, that's the same thing. There's a, there's a mood out there in, in some circles that, that confuses somebody who has convictions with somebody who wants to coerce. Now, sadly, there's a lot of those kinds out there, but um, the best persuaders are people who have strong views, but um, are good at the art of persuasion and listening and dialogue. And um, so when Christians disagree, what you hope for is that it can be done in an atmosphere of, of trust, an atmosphere that doesn't confuse um, uh, truth for coercion, and that doesn't think disagreement is the end of the world. Um, the, you know, Europeans um, probably do this a bit better than some Americans. We, uh, we love to debate, and we can get pretty vigorous at this thing. And then after the debate's over, you know, we, we, the fur is flying and everything. It's over, and then we go out and have a drink, and we're fine. You know, we're friends. Um, sometimes in America, we're so sensitive that we feel like if I've disagreed with you, I've, you know, I'm offending you, or I'm hurting you, or I'm insensitive to you. Or um, I've had students apologize to me in my classes for disagreeing. And I, please don't apologize. It's a high compliment. It means what I've said has some teeth in it, you know. If nobody disagreed with me, I'd, ha- I'd worry about myself. So um, I think disagreement is good as long as it can be done with the, with the goal in view of arriving at truth together and with enough trust to do it um, in an atmosphere where um, persuasion, not coercion, is, is being put to the fore. There's a follow-up here. Uh, what does it mean to do work that is not visibly influenced by biblical values? There was a suggestion that 
that you were saying that uh, we have to be light. And, uh, yeah, uh, maybe this goes back to the question about how do you be a politician uh, and you believe strongly in biblical values, but you can't exactly open up your Bible and quote verses because the other politicians uh, will, will not understand or will consider you a fanatic. Um, there are invisible arguments uh, in the sense that you're not opening a text but that are nonetheless just as vigorous because they come from revelation. The person you're arguing with may not know that, but it is true nonetheless. Um, lots of invisible arguments from uh, people's conscience, from um, the way God has set up the world and his creation ordinances, from Romans 1 type of awareness are, are valid. And then probably also what this question is getting at, I suppose, is the lifestyle of, of the Christian um, you know, it's always a shame when a Christian has strong principles and then violates them in his own life um, in some way that's, that people can notice. And we're supposed to be salt and light, which, you know, means that we're, um, we're supposed to be in private who we are in public. Um, and also something I said last night, I believe in very strongly, the people who are most convincing to, to me, people who I would go to most easily for help if I needed it, are not the people who are there for me in their rhetoric, but are people who just uh, are going to be there for you whether you want them there or not. Um, they're kind of the invisible helpers. We have lots of those where I live. Um, remarkable people who seem to show up at the right time when you need something or just pick up the... F they, they phone you when you, they have a sense that you'd like to talk. Um, um, that's part of what it is, I think, to be an invisible... Um, carrier of a, of a message, an invisible herald. Um, so I don't know if that's what the questioner is after. But. Okay, this is about art. Do you think the Renaissance period in visual art was a special period of time influenced by the Spirit of God, never to be repeated? That's a yes or no. All right. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, so I would never want to predict... Uh, and as a seminary prof, you don't get a lot of profit. I no. <laughs> right. okay. I, I didn't quite take a vow of poverty, but it seems to have been imposed on me. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> I do think the Renaissance was a remarkable flourishing uh, for all kinds of reasons, some of them to do with Christianity. Um, and um, in that way, I suppose there was something unique about it. Um, I don't think any less of the Impressionist movement. Um, I don't think any less of some of the amazing African art that came in some of the empires. Um, I, I think it's a remarkable time, but not uh, absolutely unique. Um, so the, here, here are some follow-ups. Um, 